Lisa Cusick was my friend. But you are also my friends, and I want my friends in my life. Because someday we're going to wake up, and we're going to find that someone is missing from this circle. And on that day, we're going to mourn. And we shouldn't have to mourn alone. To Lisa, and the sweet sound of her voice. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me in the cave. This is Tyler Orton, suffering from barstool vertigo. <laughs> Again? <laughs> Apparently it's a thing, according to Odo. And we're here this week to talk about the season six episode of Deep Space Nine, The Sound of Her Voice. Perhaps an episode that doesn't jump right to the forefront of your memory. But Tyler, like this was your pick to talk about. Why is that? And to me, it seems like kind of a, a quintessential Deep Space Nine episode in which you are just spending a lot of times digging into the characters, what makes them tick. And also, it's one of the few episodes where like almost everybody has like quite a bit to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a great showcase for uh, Cassidy uh, being a very, very patient woman in a relationship <laughs> with a guy who's being a real jerk at times in, in the situation. Um, but even like, like, it's it's actually like a subtly like great Jake Cisco episode as well. And it's not just mm -hmm. kind of the, you know, the A story that's going on in which we have one Captain Lisa Cusack, the um, commander of the USS Olympia, uh, sending out kind of a mayday trying to get rescued by the crew of the defiance you know we have a lot going on the station as well in terms of kind of the smaller character stuff the the, the dynamics between like odo and cork that are at play and it makes me wonder why like we never had like a, an arc of like cork in prison you know how is this guy still just running around with, with, with impunity at this point for the station. But, you know, that, that's a discussion maybe we can have later on. But to me, this is just such a quintessential <laughs> Deep Space Nine, kind of a hidden gem. And it's also the penultimate episode of the season before we get into um, uh, Tears of the Prophets, the uh, season six finale. Maybe a little bit more of a controversial episode there with regards to the uh, the demise of Jizia. Um, This almost feels as if, well, I, I think it is quite intentional, though, that this is almost kind of a, a, a way to say goodbye very subtly to a you know core member of the cast without having to literally stand there for yet another funeral like two episodes in a row uh, that we otherwise would have had mm. to kind of endure in this situation but um i don't know this, this is just an episode that's always kind of stuck around in my brain is a little bit underappreciated but um i don't know it may have been a little while since you've watched this what was your takeaway from this most recent uh, uh viewing for you tyler we've been watching star trek discovery you know episode to episode and so much is said on that show about connection communication <laughs> And they will always put the point on it. No, no. This story is about communication. This season was about communication or connection. To me, this episode showcases those two things in a way that's not flashy. It's not hammering you over the head, telling you this is what the episode is about. 
It's about, you know, our group of characters who are worn down by war, encountering the voice of this stranded, you know, um, first officer. Was she a first officer or captain? I thought she was the captain of the ship. Okay, captain. Because like, I think she, I think she like described herself as commander of the vessel. And That's right. So to me, like commander means like she's in command of the ship. Right. Yes. And just through the conversations, how it like allows them to connect with her and how the relationship changes our main characters on the show. Like it's just, it's showing you, not telling you about the growth these characters are going through. And like, this is just a single episode featuring Lisa Cusack. We only hear the voice other than, you know, the body at the end of the episode, but really just the voice through the entirety of this hour. And yet it just like hangs over those characters in a way that I think has such an emotional punch when you get to the end. Like we only hear the voice, but like Lisa has presence. And that is a character that I think has like a more dynamic role than a lot of characters we see on screen, you know, slathered in alien makeup or whatever throughout the many, many, many other Star Trek series. Well, it's they're like fighting over who gets to talk to her next by the uh, the end of the episode. You know, with, <laughs> I I do appreciate how it started with uh, Julian just kind of like going like, oh yeah, oh yeah, only pretending to listen to her. You know, um, <laughs> that that was pretty good stuff. But it, it, look, okay, it definitely had a gut punch. Although it, they did briefly consider just leaving her like corpse down there in the cave. Like, um, that's kind of cold. <laughs> But uh, it's like, yeah, we're busy. We came all the way here. Uh, we can't be bothered taking the body back. Let's just bury it in this horrible, horrible cave. <laughs> I'm glad that they, uh, you know, pushed back on that and brought her back to the station for kind of a proper Irish wake there. But I mean, I, that Irish wake was like, very revelatory as well. You know, Miles is not someone who is just wearing his heart <laughs> on his sleeve, but he's he like, it might be one of my favorite, like, just kind of quick Miles line readings, you know, uh, where he's just like, look, we've grown apart. We didn't mean for it to happen, but it did, and the war made that happen. And it's the crew coming to a lot of realizations about how the war has changed them, and how uncomfortable Ben is with you know his partner being in this kind of starship situation where at war while he's there with her. You know, um, even like Julian, like kind of explaining, like you know, like. I I have a heart. <laughs> I, I care about you all, <laughs> even though it cares it seems like I care more about my work. You know, I, I I don't know. Like like it's just those kinds of moments where it feels organic and it feels earned by the time you get to the end of the episode. And they are kind of using Lisa, and I, I, I say they, the, the writers are using Lisa as kind of a um, a perfect conduit to kind of elicit a lot of these kinds of emotions from like characters that uh, you know, like. Ben is aloof throughout this, and I think they are kind of acknowledging mm -hmm. that oftentimes, you know, uh, Star Trek characters can be rather aloof, unless you are Michael Burnham and uh, you're crying all the time. I don't know that Neelix is ever aloof, really. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. You know, yeah. I, Cam, I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt, though. Like, uh, remember, like, uh, Penny Johnson was in Vegas uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, yes. why did I not get my photo with her? Like, I don't know. She's just such a great like addition to the cast like had they not gone with the esri avenue like i think cassidy yates could have easily just been planted in the main cast for season seven there and i think this is like it, like she's just such like a uh like a calming presence almost amid everything else mm. that's going on in this episode too and i think she plays a really invaluable uh role which is that like cisco 
could be a pretty intimidating character, and there's not really another you know character on the show that can kind of take a jab at him or underline a flaw in his character. The fact that like you know he's at that you know desk or whatever, and Bashir comes by and has been quiet, and Cisco says, "Oh, I prefer him this way," and then he goes like, oh, "I don't mean that," and she's like, "Yes, yes, you do." And the fact that she can like pinpoint how he can be quite cold, like no other character would say that to Cisco. So I think she's just an invaluable presence on the show for her ability to kind of through her like teach us more about the character of Cisco. And I will say though that moment where he's talking to um to Lisa and she's saying you know you seem so much more comfortable talking about the war than about your relationship with Cassidy <laughs> and he does that like moment where he like <laughs> like rubs the back of his neck and he's just like oh god like <laughs> get me out of here <laughs> what an amazing like kind of like character driven but also comedic Cisco beat but also I, I like Avery Brooks performance in this one as well like when he's initially talking to lisa just the subtle thing that i think avery brooks decided to do I, I kind of doubt that a director went up to him and suggested like how about you just kind of swirl the pad on your table mm. there you know and like he was just kind of swirling the pad like like you could tell he was a little antsy you know in that discussion uh with her and i think it just some of the, those subtle things that uh avery brooks was doing throughout this episode um not so subtle being kind of a jerk to his partner though no, not so subtle, but it's interesting because he's such an idiosyncratic performer. How often do you think they actually were even giving him advice in terms of Cisco? So much of what we see on screen feels so like it only could have come from just the energy of Avery Brooks. I'm pretty sure that Avery Brooks was directing himself, you know, throughout yeah. all of this. It was interesting. I was listening to another podcast and... Uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf was the guest. Uh, he was a longtime writer on um, uh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, this is Inglorious Trexperts that he was on a couple of months ago. And he was just talking about like how some of the actors would approach their characters. And he said that the first mm. thing that uh, Rene Bergeron would always do whenever he'd get a script is he would take a Sharpie and block out all of the direction that the writers would give to Odo. And, you know, Odo reacts like this, or Odo makes this face, or he makes this motion. He would just focus on the text and then find his character within the text there. And so I listened to hmm. that episode, like, uh, right before I went and watched this episode. And it's just very informative about how, you know, how, how he cares about his character and how he kind of knows instinctually how to play it. And, and you know, I, I just got the sense a lot of these actors, you know, you're, you're six, seven years in at this point. You are kind of directing yourself rather than having some, you know, newbie director come in and saying like, "Why don't you give me give it to me this way or that way?" Yeah, and when I think about like, especially the Star Trek captains, they are such specific performances. Whether it's you know Shatner or Mulgrew, um, you know Brooks. So I have a hard time even imagining at a certain point that like, I think so much just comes from the performer that like they cast them for a reason because of what they bring so it doesn't make sense to try to corral them uh speaking of casting cam uh deborah wilson who did the voice of uh lisa cusack um like i knew her from like mad tv but when i like watched the episode for the very first time i could not like it it, it hung over my head like i recognized the voice and it bugged me throughout mm. the entire episode that i could not place the voice the entire time so when i finally found that out gosh like 25 years ago, I guess, is when the episode aired. 
but um, it, it was just like, uh, to me, it's just kind of very critical that you do have this uh, performer who's able to kind of em embody a very, almost like a Counselor Troy kind of a spirit to it. And she had that discussion uh, with uh, O'Brien about how, yeah, maybe, maybe a ship's counselor is needed, especially kind of in times of war when you don't necessarily want to lay these burdens upon your family or your friends. Well, she's so good in that scene too, because she kind of says up front, like, Oh, I don't have time for ship's counselors. And O'Brien's like, right. And the way she <laughs> kind of like leads him down the rabbit hole about like, well, have you talked to your friends? Oh no. Oh, okay. Uh, or your wife? No. Okay. Well, I guess that just leaves the ship's counselor. Like, you know, it's interesting that it's someone who was adept at comedy because the way that she is so nimble and the way that she can kind of pivot in a scene feels like the sort of like improvisational nature you would get from a comedian. And um, even the bit where she like dupes Bashir and makes him think she's being attacked by some sort of creature or something <laughs> like that's a very funny like prank she pulls. But like we know Star Trek's track record for comedy. We did an episode about Star Trek and comedy. Um, it can be pretty rough. And I think like she really makes a moment like that both funny, but also feel baked into the character very efficiently. I think it's one of our least funny episodes that we ever did on the podcast, Cam. Uh... <laughs> Which is saying something. <laughs> True, yeah, it really is. <laughs> I had a question for you. You were saying yeah. when you watched this episode the first time, the voice was driving you crazy through the episode, trying to figure out who it was. Yeah. Were you frustrated when they got to that cave and it was just a skeleton? <laughs> just a corpse. <laughs> like you weren't, I, you didn't have the reveal. <laughs> you know, I, 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 knowing me, I probably was annoyed at uh, just the fact that it was a, a, a red-headed corpse uh, sitting there, which is <laughs> interesting. Um, you know, but I, from what I understand, though, they, um, they didn't actually look at any of the actresses during the auditions they they just wanted to hear the voice of the actresses uh when mm. they're doing the casting as well so i thought that was kind of an interesting decision um you know just you don't let your uh kind of your mind have those own like biases or or what have you by having a look at what the person must look like because the characters don't get to have that but the, the question that I, I was wondering though is like did no one bother to look up the um, records of from Starfleet about the USS Olympia and, and, and try to do a little bit of math about like um, when the ship would have disappeared. Yeah. Okay. Nitpick corner. That is an excellent one because I, I thought of that as well. It seems like, well, lost ship. Maybe we could just take a second and uh, figure that one out. Um, I also just thought they were like very quick to just have complete faith that this person was who they say they were like, they were very quick to just be like, okay, let's just start uh, giving personal details to this voice on the other <laughs> end without, it, it is wartime. It could be a Dominion plot. Like yes. it could be a trap. You don't a hundred percent know. It felt like that was something that you didn't even have that brief dialogue exchange explaining that like, no, we a hundred percent can trust that this is a stranded, you know, Federation member. Cisco is literally telling her how the war was going uh, and... <laughs> The attacks on the uh, on, on Beta Z. It's <laughs> just like, um, okay. Very trusting people. It's Wayun on the other side being like, mm, tell me more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the twist. Not not the whole time travel thing, but it's actually Wayun on that planet. Um, they also went like six days out of their way. They, they turned their ship around and then it's get, you know make up that time on the way back to the station too. Yeah, no kidding. Like, they were very convinced that this was as it was. Uh, 
I mean, it's the kind of nitpicking I don't care because I'm so drawn into the story emotionally, but it is the kind of like, wait a second kind of moment, The uh, as Alfred Hitchcock used to call them, the refrigerator moments where, or the icebox moments where you'd watch something, you'd love it, you'd walk out, and then you'd be walking to the refrigerator and be like, wait a second, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that didn't line up. But in the moment, who cares? One other nitpick though I had, maybe it's actually a little more than a nitpick. Why did we not have a scene of Lisa talking to Cassidy. I felt like that was such a missed opportunity. Or, I mean, Jadzia is not in this episode at all, really. Just to even have her talking to Jadzia if she was actually in this episode. So my understanding is that uh, Terry Farrell was busy, uh, like doing auditions and stuff. And um, Right. Yeah, and I think the uh, the writers kind of knew that. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just kind of the, the behind-the-scenes uh, explanation why but i think that um jedzia would have been like kind of a, a an addition to this episode that would have made a lot of sense although you, you'd also get the sense like um lisa's focus was on what the three most closed off people on mm -hmm. the cast you know uh, you know ben miles and julian maybe you didn't quite need to uh, dive into what was going on in Cassidy's mind, you know, but between her and Lisa. I'm sure they had discussions, but it just, it, like, what is she going to reveal? What is Cassidy going to reveal about her character other than, like, and what's already clear to us as the audience is that she's a little perturbed by um, Ben's behavior. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's entirely valid in terms of that it wouldn't reveal a lot. It just feels like kind of a missed opportunity. You don't, I mean, even if it was just like a brief moment, I think of the episode, you know, Facets, um, where you have various characters inhabiting former hosts of Jadzia's, uh, the, the, the Dax symbiont, and you have Lita. And Lita's not going to get a huge amount of screen time in comparison to some of the other cast members, but it's just like a brief moment. I would have loved, give me like a 10, 15 second, uh, second snippet of Cassidy just talking to the voice, just to have a sense that there's a relationship there as well. Well, that, okay, talking about facets, though, that was only Lita's second appearance, and the only reason she was there is because uh, one Rosalind Chow was not available to play Keiko for that specific um, sure. uh, moment there. You know, I, I get what you're saying, but I think thematically that's not what the writers were going for in this episode, though. They, they wanted to, uh, you know, kind of like pinpoint three of the most aloof, like, kind of main cast members. Although you, you would have thought that maybe Worf could... Uh, could have had some chit chat mm -hmm. time with her, you know, but I, I just don't, I don't know if Cassidy necessarily would have worked in thematically with what, like, I know what you're talking about, like on kind of a mechanical level, uh, you know, and also yeah. it, it's just kind of the economics of storytelling. Like you, you got to kind of like kill your darlings at some point. What do you think Worf was thinking the whole time? Was he just like, do you think Worf was offered the chance to talk to her and was like, no, I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like the, He's not exactly the, the most talkative of sorts, you know, like, does she, and also does Lisa really want to hear about like his thoughts on Klingon opera? What would they have talked about? <laughs> I mean, it would have been a good like a uh, 10 second snippet of Worf sitting there uncomfortably uh, making small talk and then cut away from that just, just for the laughs. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, but then it kind of undercuts Lisa's role as somebody that has kind of this like power to kind of uh, pull things out of people you know and like um mm. you know you know even people like uh you know the chief or, or uh julian you know no it's very true in terms of like the you know the 
culmination of the episode, yes, the power is the three individuals she talked to and how she changed them. I guess to me, it's like just a little bit of the like the sense of like a communal grieving over her in the funeral would be maybe helped by just, even just like a montage that other characters were talking to her as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is a kind of a curious case as well. Like, so I went and looked up the uh, rating this episode got on IMDb. Uh oh. Um, it's a 7.4. Okay. You know, which is, that's the same reading that Among the Lotus Eaters got uh, this past season on Strange New Worlds. And I think you thought, <laughs> you and I both thought that uh, the Lotus Eater episode was uh, uh, pr- probably the, the weak point of season two of Strange New Worlds. Uh, yes. And that is the memory episode for people that don't remember. Uh, that would be ironic. Um, but uh yeah, I, I, the 7.4, I just wonder how much of that has to do with the fact it's taking place during a Dominion War-heavy season, and it is not a Dominion War episode, really outside of the impact the war is having on our main characters. But I think the scores tend to be affected a little bit by kind of how flashy the action is during those episodes. And I don't mean like, you know, ship battles. I just mean in terms of like kind of intense war stories. I was looking through the ratings for that season as a whole because I thought that was a little low, you know. But I just think maybe the um, IND, IMDb users uh, slash Deep Space Nine fans that were going to the effort of making those ratings, I think maybe they just maybe hold that show to a little bit higher standards. 7.4 was kind of par for the course, you know, kind of uh, maybe an average episode, you know. And I think this, mm-hmm. for me, uh, when it comes to Star Trek, I think this is definitely an, an above average episode of Deep Space Nine. To me, it deserves a higher score if only for the twist, because you just don't see it coming the first time you see this episode. You're waiting for the rescue and that kind of that catharsis of these characters finally meeting her, having that emotional connection in the flesh, and to get there and just have that really like intentionally underwhelming, just cutting the legs out from the audience of like, oh, like she has been dead for three years and a couple days. And you just kind of have this moment where you're just left to kind of go like, ha. Huh. And I, I wonder how much that very intended lack of sort of emotional payoff for people um, kind of impacts the score and the way that they perceive this episode walking away from it. Well, in terms of like tough deaths, I, I mean, I thought this was far more effective than the one that would unfold in the next episode in which, you know, Dukat just kills Jedzia in the Bajoran <laughs> temple on the station. And it's just like, oof, that was pretty rough. Yeah, and very silly and had bad effects and just did not really <laughs> even work dramatically in any way that has like really stuck with me. I think that is one of the weakest deaths on Star Trek. Um, whereas like this one, there is that element of kind of survival horror to it as well. I mean, we've all seen movies where you know characters are stranded in the wilderness or at sea or something like that and you can kind of psychologically put yourself in their place throughout the course of the movie or tv episode and i think like this does a really good job doing entirely just through you know the account of the person stranded to really kind of make you feel kind of the the horror and the isolation that she's going through and so when you get to that end too, it just is like that real like kind of doom chord arriving at the end of this story. I think it's just so effective as you're talking about, you know, dwindling supplies to fight the uh, CO2 poisoning that is going to take effect. I could just picture that sort of scenario and being stuck in it. Yeah. Um, 
I want to jump over to the B story. I, I thought this was a pretty solid B story going on in the station with regards to Cork uh, trying to distract Odo by getting Odo to make plans for his one-month anniversary with uh, Kira, and Jake getting to shadow Cork because he has uh, writer's block. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. To me, it was just kind of a fun, kind of, uh, again, more of the kind of the character-based stuff that was going on, but a, a fun little uh, B story. And getting to watch Jake put to good use is always nice. He's usually paired up with Nog in these kinds of uh, strong Jake outings. We saw a couple others, you know, like uh, that one episode uh, was it? Uh, oh, it, he was paired up with uh, Bashir on that planet. Um, I think it had the word battle in it or something like that. Nor the battle for the strong? Uh, nor the battle B for the strong or something? I, like, I, yeah, we're, we're thinking about the same episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, that one, you know, and, and also just seeing him peered up, uh, paired up with, uh, you know, Ben, that was pretty common. We didn't see a lot of, like, Jake and Quark pairings, and I think this one worked well. Although I think part of the reason that um, I, 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 Odo kind of had to let Quark go on this one and, and uh, not uh, and let him get away with smuggling those crystals, because I think um, Jake would have had to have been arrested as an accessory to this crime, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, I think it just would have made things quite complicated for uh, Odo in this situation as well. I think this might have the funniest Jake moment of the entire series, which is when um, Quark is saying to Odo, you know, oh, it's a one-month anniversary. That's sort of important. And Odo just kind of scoffs and is like, whatever. Quark walks away. And then he says, who's ever heard of like a one-month anniversary? And he looks at Jake and Jake just does that very silent, like deadpan look at him. <laughs> It was just like this very subtle nod. It, like he didn't yes. overact or anything that he wasn't getting hammy. He just kind of like, eh, sort of look. And I, uh, it might have been like one of my favorite Jake moments uh, of all of Deep Space Nine. I think it might be his best comedic beat of the entire series. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has probably better, you know, big emotional moments or something along the lines of that over the course of the series. But in terms of like a moment that genuinely made me laugh, I thought it was fantastic. And kind of to me made me wonder like boy they should have done more i mean they did quite a bit with jake wanting to become a writer i would have loved like to see episodes of him shadowing other characters like give me the episode where jake is just shadowing garrick for an episode i <laughs> okay that would have been fun what who would have been other fun shadow uh episodes uh with, with regards to jake he, we kind of got that with julian ben of course uh, he's always paired up with nog uh, oh you know what jake and Worf. That would have been a uh, an interesting pairing right there, and we kind of did get that with um oh yeah Jake and uh, oh you know what the original plan was for the episode Valiant, it was going to be uh, Jake and Kira, uh, okay going over to the uh, the Valiant, and then um, the writers realized you know what if it was Kira she just would have like kicked everyone's ass and told them to get in line and like kind of taken control of the situation versus you have Nog kind of falling for it you know so. Um, I think the most awkward Jake and Kira thing was in the episode, uh, what was it called? Uh, Fascination. Yeah. In which Loxana gave everybody kind of the, uh, that, uh, psychic fever and, uh, their lustful, um, nature was kind of revealed. And then, uh, Jake was like, I got a crush on you, Kira. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think an amazing pairing would have been Jake being hired to ghostwrite the memoirs of Goldicott. <laughs> 
during the occupation when they took over the DS9 station. Like, don't tell me it wouldn't be amazing having Jake sitting there rolling his eyes as, like, Mark Alimo is reciting these, like, very pompous <laughs> lines about uh, Goldicott's majesty and, you know, past glories. It would have been a big step up the, uh, compared when he had to sit on a... Uh, uh... Vedic Burial's deathbed and write and ghostwrite <laughs> that guy's uh, uh, memoirs right there. It was more like a pamphlet, I think, really, than a memoir for mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this was just kind of interesting. Just thinking how, like, we met Jake as like a like a thirteen year old, and now he's like twenty, hanging out at bars <laughs> with a cork. You know, like I don't know. It's just kind of it is interesting, like watching. Which somebody pointed out, like, uh, somebody, I think it's the first time that somebody started as the shortest cast member and then turned into the tallest mm. cast member by the time you get to the <laughs> end of the show. But, you know, like, Jake does feel like an adult now, not just kind of an adolescent, not just like kind of a, uh, 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 like an older teen. He, he does feel like, you know, kind of a young man at this point. I think, is Jake and Nog, like, the most effective, like, maturations of a character on Star Trek? Like, someone growing from, like, a kid into... Uh, you know, uh, kind of growing up on a Star Trek show because I think of like Wesley and there's a lot of, you know, good Wesley moments that we've highlighted in the past, but like it often felt a little bumpy or they'd give Wesley really snotty moments. You kind of rolled your eyes. It felt like almost like, uh, you know, sitcom kind of moments. Everything about Jake and Nog feels very organic. I, I would like to think that Adira from Star Trek Discovery is, is that that is it right there, you know, like, mm. um, you know, just a... Uh, I like how they cast, what, like a 30-year-old to play a 16-year-old? Um, <laughs> interesting choice. Yeah, but, yeah uh, that's correct. They've now been adopted by uh, Space Daddies. And uh, yeah, you know, it, it's very much kind of the, the Ray Skywalker situation where, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, okay. Um, I, I think the Adira thing, like, is just, it didn't quite work to the same effect that I think they were going with somebody like Jake. No, and I don't even know that you could do it as well on a modern Star Trek show, just because you had so many more episodes with previous shows, plus they went seven years, um, and they haven't introduced any kids on, say, Strange New Worlds that we would have seen, you know, age, perhaps, over the course of the show, and same with Discovery. Adira didn't even show up until season three. I do think it's like the kind of storytelling and character journey that if you pull it off, it can be really effective, and it was on DS9, but I haven't seen, you know, another Star Trek show really do it that well. Um, I mean, Voyager had Naomi, who started as a baby. Yeah. And was, what, maybe, like, in the body of a 12-year-old. She's an alien, so I can buy that, but what, like, sure. 10, 11, 12, around that age, uh, Scarlett Palmers was playing her? Is that is that accurate? That. Seems about right, yeah. And it's just like with Naomi. I'm terrible with children's ages. <laughs> oh, so am I. The thing about Naomi was like, good idea. The idea of someone being born on this ship, lost in the Delta Quadrant, and growing up, you know, over the course of the journey. But her appearances were so sporadic that it just didn't feel like the kind of journey you got on DS9. She's <laughs> had an absentee mother who who left her in the care of Neelix most of the time. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So dark. <laughs> very dark, very dark. <laughs> Speaking of dark, um, Terry Metalis, uh, the showrunner of season three Picard, said that the plan was to bring her back, uh, Naomi Wild, uh, Wildman, uh, as a Fenris Ranger uh, in an episode of season three. And um, they just realized that they, <laughs> they just didn't. Have, and she was like, she had gone super dark as well 
and I'm just like, okay, you know, um, I'm glad that they kept that one kind of uh, locked up um, <laughs> in the writer's vault at that point. Now, do you think they would have explained what a Fenris Ranger was in that storyline? Cam, in season one, we, we still didn't even understand what word they were saying. That, like, when they were first introduced, we were like, Federation Ranger? Like, are, are they just <laughs> mumbling the word Federation or something like that? They're <laughs> just like, um, yeah, I, I, Fenris Rangers, they deliver medical supplies. Uh, what else do they do, Cam? Um, do they, like, protect, like, outposts and things like that from pirates? Yeah, because remember there's that, like, uh, Romulan captain with that old school ship who we yeah. never s saw or heard from again after the La Serena uh, damaged it and the captain vowed revenge or something like that. <laughs> it was just like, um, and then Seven was there to help save the day. Yeah. Um, hmm. Speaking of Romulans, this episode reminded me quite a bit of the Voyager episode. Is it Eye of the Needle? The one where they're talking to the Romulan over subspace? It is, yeah. Yeah. Can you remind me, what was the twist at the end of that one? That, in fact, the Romulan, uh, their, the wormhole was uh, sending messages back and forth through time, as very similar to this. And the twist was, <laughs> is they, they looked through their records of this Romulan captain and found out that uh, he would have died before he had the chance to send everybody the letters back home, because they didn't want to interfere with the timeline. Right, and so it seems as if like he didn't quite, he wasn't able to deliver letters home. Okay, uh, it's interesting to me like how both of the these episodes, you know, Eye of the Needle and the Sound of Her Voice, work so well. And I'm re I'm reminded also of the movie Frequency, the Dennis Quaid film, perhaps a little bit forgotten now, although they did make a TV show out of it, and how effective that was. There's something about like just two characters talking through time that can be so compelling, and it's interesting that like. You can say I, the needle, and the sound of her voice are almost cases of Star Trek ripping itself off. But when they're both done so well, you can't really complain. Cam, I'm going to be so upset if the series finale of Star Trek Discovery does not feature Michael Burnham and Ash Tyler sending messages back and forth through time so that they can connect one, <laughs> one last moment there. Because it's all about connection. I mean, uh, sign me up for that. The tether. The tether through time and space. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, the other thing that this serves as kind of a fun reminder for me, though, is like uh, the promenade. If I had to choose, like I, just as you're walk, watching all these aliens walk back and forth and just kind of all the action going on in Quark's bar, if you could go back in time and visit any Star Trek sets while they were filming, you know, for me, it would be the promenade. But what would it be for you? I'm, I'm just curious. The... <sighs> The TOS fan in me really wants to go back to the kind of original sets from that show just because they're so beautiful. You have to choose one set. But I, I do. I know. And I'll, I'll kind of like talk it through. Like the thing is, I'm wondering, having seen recreations of the uh, original series Bridge, you know, in Vegas, for example, yeah. would it just feel like, yep, okay, I kind of have seen this before. And I also wonder if they would just be like so small that it would be really, really underwhelming. Whereas like the promenade, I do think like it feels, despite the fact you get the the real very real sense this is a you know uh, broadcast TV budget creating this world. It feels very large and significant on the show. So I would actually be maybe the most curious about actually seeing it in person, just to like look at the scale of it and like hang our feet off the railings, right? Exactly. Yes, and talk to a uh, junior reporter, as they said in Lower Decks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just it has kind of this sense of vibrancy 
you know, that's, um, let's be honest, like, like the Enterprise D bridge is pretty cool, but I mean, okay, yeah, you sit in the captain's chair and, uh, uh-huh. and then what, you know, it, it's not as much to kind of explore. You kind of get, and it, it's relatively small as you were kind of alluding to with the TOS sets uh, of the bridge as well. I think the promenade would lend itself to a lot of exploration. I think honestly, after that, I'd probably want to go visit the TNG uh, um, main engineering. I think that would be oh, that's a good uh, one. also an opportunity to kind of explore too. I kind of like the um, original series engineering, and also you know one maybe a stealth pick. I think it would be actually kind of cool to see the Enterprise engineering, right? Which was kind of a, a kind of an odd setup. I thought that that would be interesting to see because it seemed like once they did the TNG one, they kind of copied that template a little bit when they got to Voyager. But the Enterprise one really seemed quite different. And uh, I'm just gonna throw this in there. Um, like to uh, troll you, Cam, by reminding you that uh, I've done a visit to the uh, main engineering of the Strange New Worlds version of the Enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of cool. But alas, it, it was um, it was the uh, AR wall, you know, kind of the volume uh, LED screen setup, you know, that um, it wasn't the actual physical sets. It's just I, I visited a volume at a uh, film studio here in Metro Vancouver. And they transported kind of the uh, the digital set from uh, Strange New Worlds around me, which is pretty cool to see. What would your reaction have been if you'd shown up for that assignment and they'd said, I hope you know that you're a Star Trek fan because we are going to show you an environment from your favorite Star Trek show. And then they brought up the Beetle Bomb planet from Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would have been annoyed. <laughs> Yeah. I, wasn't that like their first use of the air R wall? I don't, I'm not going to say it was the first, but it was a very early one. So I think it was like episode sure. four of season four. And I think the AR wall first came into use in season four. And I think they had been talking it up and you and I had been familiarized with it through Mandalorian and looking at the mm-hmm. uh, very, very awesome looking um uh, kind of digital landscapes, alien landscapes created there. I, I mean, like, we were very, very excited to see what they'd be doing on, um, say, Discovery. And I don't know, to me, didn't, like those alien landscapes didn't quite hit the same way on Discovery as they did for me on Mandalorian. No, no. And I, I think it's that much more impressive that Strange New Worlds has made them look quite effective because I really didn't have a lot of hope that they would be able to pull them off coming out of discovery it just seemed like okay well maybe these creative teams don't really have a good handle on it but uh well strange new world just kind of turned it around yeah uh, let me pitch something to you cam i kind of alluded to it at the the start of this but um you know how is it cork has never been sent to prison you know like we should have had an arc where he's like sent off for doing some sort of crime and maybe we don't even see him for two episodes maybe it's just you know rom running the bar in the meantime if we could have had an entire episode centered on rom a day in the life kind of like running the bar like that would have been like Mm, kind of a blast and then maybe we have one episode the next week in which like we see cork in prison kind of running the game there or what have you and then maybe he comes back after like i don't know the fourth episode or something like that i I just think that we're kind of missing a cork faces consequences for his crime you know, like sort of arc that, that I think this show really kind of misfired on that. Not not uh, ever acknowledging that this guy was guilty of a lot of bad things. Especially taking into account that Cassidy Yates went to prison and not Quark. <laughs> yes. She was there for like six, or maybe like eight months or something. 
Yeah, like that's insane. I I like how this episode gives Quark like kind of an emotional moment where he's saying like he was giving Odo advice, and you you have that moment of Odo kind of you know being aware of this because he was you know disguising himself as cargo. I like that little bit of emotional connection. Like this episode has a lot of emotional connections that pay off in really, I think, uh, affecting ways. But um, Quark not going to prison, I'll let him off the, you know, for this one. Like this is a fun him getting away with it or Odo letting him get away with making some money. But I, I think if you were going to send Quark to prison, it had to be for the one where he was like dealing arms, right? Like that feels <laughs> like that should have been Quark's going to prison two-parter. Well, remember the uh, the season two episode in which he essentially got these mercenaries access to invade the station so that they could steal the Dax symbiont yeah. and have it implanted into another Trill host? And um, yeah, nothing ever came of any consequences for Quark uh, after everybody in the crew knew that he was responsible for getting the uh, mercenaries access to the station. No, that that was early goings. So I guess I can give them a little bit of a pass that he didn't face real repercussions, but definitely as the show continued onwards, like yeah. it just would have been good creative fodder. Like never mind the whole like uh, letting Quark off, you know, for doing bad things, but like just as a story, it would have been interesting to have that like two-parter or something, um, you know, that kind of short arc, three or four episode arc where we you know, found out what Quark was up to in prison. Like, maybe he's, like, staging a great escape-like escape. Uh, who knows? Like, I think you could have done something with that. I think Armin Shimmerman probably would have been interested in that kind of material as well. I just want to know what he was wearing for prison garb because he's such a snappy dresser, you know. Would he have been given, like, kind of an orange jumpsuit? Would it have been more kind of like a, a, a space prison jumpsuit, you know? We've seen other prisoners before. Like, I remember Burnham, she had that kind of, like, like a golden jumpsuit um uh, in what episode 3 of discovery yeah what other we, we've seen other prisoners across star trek before uh, uh, tom paris in caretaker uh he was at right. the uh, new zealand penal colony I, I i'm pretty sure he was wearing a vest but um that's pretty much uh every star trek character <laughs> not in starfleet um yeah i would have put quark in the old timey black and white stripes with preferably a ball and chain around his leg <laughs> there we go there we go but like a uh a holographic uh ball you know like the chain is like real but yeah the, yeah you know we're on the same page exactly yeah and a harmonica he's got to be playing the harmonica and he's got one of those like tin cups that you can rattle against like the bars you know <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I think that would be um, where I'd like to see Quark go. It is interesting now that I think also we had that two-parter where a bunch of the crew wound up in the um, Jem'Hadar-run prison. It seems like a lot of characters on DS9 spent time in prisons who weren't Quark. <laughs> yeah. Remember, like, uh, Chief O'Brien had, like, that memory implant in which he spent, like, he remembered spending 30 years in prison as well? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, hard time, yeah. Uh, Tom Riker was sent off to prison um, in uh, the episode uh, Defiant as well. Uh, I'm sure uh, Norris had to... Uh, she she had been locked up before by the Cardassians. I'm sure that must have happened. Uh, yep. Who else, man? Uh, well, she breaks um, that character out of prison in the three-parter uh, at the end of season... No, at the start of season two... Uh, so yeah, we saw a lot of prisons on 
DS9. And maybe that is the ultimate joke, is that, like, Quark never even came close to winding up in a prison. He must have just an exceptional lawyer. Like, I, that's what I have to believe. And the fact that we never got to meet Quark's lawyer, I think that's a travesty right there. That would have been a great story, actually. Quark needing a lawyer, and we get a little bit of a look at Ferengi Law. I think that could have been an absolute blast. Uh, I was just thinking, wasn't um, Jadzia's one of her previous hosts in prison as well? Uh, well, there's, was it Jarell who was the murderer? Yeah. I don't know if ever if he ever went to prison versus like... Okay. Because I, I think, didn't they like give him the symbiont and like he murdered someone and then they like took it out pretty quickly or something like that? Okay. Well, at least there was punishment. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, huh. yeah. All right. Well, Kim, sound of her voice. I think that this is uh, Deep Space Nine being Deep Space Nine. Uh, it just, it, it's one mm-hmm. of those easy ones to digest and um, just see how they unlock kind of key character moments. And, and it, just, it just feels like it's just such a kind of, the. it's not like, okay, you, you, you do your Deep Space Nine rewatch and you're waiting on pins and needles for, say, a call to arms, you know, or sacrifice of angels. Like, this just seems kind of like um, a totally organic episode that you can pop in at any time and it, it still feels earned with the consequences that unfold here for all of our characters. Well, when we did the um, assembling, like, the worst season of Star Trek, we found a lot of, like, very poor kind of nothing episodes in the back half of seasons. And I think it would be so easy for a show like DS9, which has a lot of heavy hitter episodes running throughout season six, to be like, uh, this is a quieter week. And like for DS9, a quiet episode was one like this, where it was, you know, pretty stripped down, just the actors and a set, basically, uh, you know, their normal sets, with the exception of the cave planet at the end. But like, they managed to make a story that had such an emotional powerhouse kind of feel to it that even if it is small in comparison to the big ship battles and all the big drama the of the war the episode itself still is probably as emotionally powerful as those other episodes it just shows that like this show was never really content to just kind of like throw a softball down the middle uh unless you're talking about take me out to the hollow suite exactly exactly but that's that's a baseball that's a baseball yeah yeah like, there's not a lot of, like, just totally middle-of-the-road forgettable episodes of DS9 in, like, the later seasons. You can look at a bad episode, say, like, A Prophet in Lace, but it's not like they're just, like, throwing out just kind of a nothing burger. They're just failing really badly in that one, but they're at least trying something. I'll give you an example, though, of uh, just to crap all over your point, though. But um, Okay, please. Uh, Resurrection, you know, the return of a uh, mere universe burial, you know, like that is just kind of a nothing burger of an episode. It has the unfortunate um, timing of coming immediately after you are cordially invited. And this one just kind of fell flat. Like it was kind of, I, I get what they were trying to do with it as an idea, as a concept, you know, bringing burial back once more. This is really not a character that needed to have any more exploration, especially the mere universe version. See, I might have to disagree there. I think just the act of bringing Vedic Brile back to the TV is one of the greatest achievements that Star Trek could ever aspire to. And the fact it didn't go great, well, that's the unfortunate part. But I mean, come on. Vedic Brile, the return. 
Well, I think on that note, Cam, we'll uh, leave that to be your Star Trek legacy, um, those thoughts right there, <laughs> and, uh, before we return back to our uh, regular scheduled programming. But uh, yeah, so Cam, uh, where can people find you on a Twitter? I'm at Cam V as in voice, Smith. That's pretty, uh, very clever. <laughs> How'd you come up with that? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in no prison time for Quark. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Mm, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>